The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. Our guest today is Bob Lyman, the ICSC Canada Economics and Policy Advisor. Mr. Lyman's credentials are too lengthy to list them all right now, so here's just a sample. You'll see why we have him on the show today. Bob spent 37 years in the Canadian Public Service as an economist and policy advisor and served as a Canadian diplomat with postings in Caracas and Washington, D.C. Throughout his public service career, Bob worked for eight prime ministers from Pierre Trudeau all the way up to Stephen Harper. In the late 1980s, Bob Lyman was the senior director of energy policy when climate change issues first arose and was the first federal co-chair of the Federal Provincial Committee on Climate Change. He was also the Director General, Environmental Affairs in Transport Canada from 2002 to 2006, leading the analysis and policy development with respect to emissions reduction in the transport sector, development and implementation of climate programs, and promotion of technology developments to reduce emissions in that sector. Bob has also spent 10 years as a consultant on energy, transportation, and environmental policy issues. He's deeply concerned about the politicization of decision-making and the stifling of dissenting views on this important subject. So welcome to the show, Bob. Thank you very much for inviting me, Tom. Yeah, it's great. Bob, I'm uh, so thrilled uh, to have you on the show. I will tell our audience right now that I have never read better economic analysis of the uh, climate change fraud, insanity, and uh, now an even bigger problem is the, the goal of net zero, the insanity of trying to get rid of hydrocarbons, carbon dioxide, and all aspects of petroleum out of our economy. It cannot be done, of course. If it were done, uh, it would send the standard of living of everyone in North America and really the world back to about 1850. And yet the governments around the world are trying to achieve it. You have uh, written about Canada, which is in an advanced position of essentially destroying uh, their economy, caring not a bit about their entire population, but you're creating a story about Canada, which could help the rest of the world because they are a model for everything that is a disaster for a national economy in their goal to uh, eliminate petroleum products 
which really are the backbone of uh, what has advanced uh, society standard of living around the world so greatly. Why uh, have you decided to show all the eras of Canada uh, to the rest of the world, I, I gather, to help the rest of the world not follow in its footsteps? Well, thanks very much for your kind words, Jay. I really appreciate that, especially from someone uh, with your stature uh, in terms of advising governments on uh, climate and energy issues. Um, I, I wrote the letter that I did f to my friends, Americans, because based on my over 35 years of experience as an analyst, advisor, and manager uh, on energy and, and climate and transportation issues in the government of Canada, uh, I could see how oversimplified and, and misleading uh, the public debate over climate policy had become, uh, both in Canada and in the United States. Uh, Canadians have been wrestling with the scientific, economic, and policy issues for, for longer than the U.S. has. I mean, we, in our case, we've been at it for oh, over 30 years now. Um, and, uh, and yet the government in Canada has adopted a, a series of policies that have had really seriously adverse and, uh, economic impacts upon the whole country, uh, but especially serious impacts on um, Western Canada, where a lot of the uh, oil and gas production is, so much so that it actually is threatening uh, the unity of the country. And um, I, I thought that it was important to um, tell that story uh, and to warn Americans about what they may be facing uh, if they proceed along the same path as Canada has. Well, we definitely are proceeding on that path although I think it's somewhat temporary. The Biden administration uh, is adopting uh, all of the policies that have been adopted uh, in Canada, trying to uh, drive uh, carbon dioxide emissions uh, down to zero by 2050. Uh, and I'm not uh, at all pessimistic about it because uh, I think he's causing enough damage along the way that in uh, a little over 14 months when we go back to the polls in November of 2022, uh, the current administration will lose control of the Congress, surely uh, the House of Representatives, and I think also the Senate. And that will make it more difficult for him to continue to uh, put forth these uh, dracon draconian uh, edicts that uh, will damage our, uh, our economy. Uh, but uh, Canada is, as you say, uh, way ahead of us is in doing these terrible things. But I want uh, our audience to uh, hear before your next comment, uh, a couple items that they may not be aware of. Uh, the level of climate change fraud is generally uh, beyond, beyond most people's conception. Man's impact on the temperature of this planet is zero for to begin with. Uh, we need more carbon dioxide, not less. Uh, plants are in danger of all dying. If we get down to 150, we were at 280 at the beginning of World War II. We're up to 415. The world has greened uh, in the last 40 years. 25% of the planet has gotten greener, which is terrific. And uh, we would, would benefit from even uh, more carbon dioxide. But the final point I want to make before 
you and Tom continue is that it is not about the gasoline in your car or in a train or in an airplane. It's about virtually 80% of everything you look at right now. Everybody listening to this show, look around the room they're in. And I can tell you with great confidence that 80% of the things you see have an input of, of hydrocarbons, a derivative of petroleum. Uh, life uh, could not exist at any level as it is today without these petroleum products. And yet we're trying to get to net zero where we burn no hydrocarbons. Just before you answer that, Bob, I'd like to just point out to our listening audience that on the America Out Loud website right now is Letter to a Neighbor, a Canadian Comments on U.S. Climate Policy. And this is the letter that Bob Lyman wrote, which Jay and I introduced on the America Out Loud website. I'll put the link right under the podcast, but in the meantime, listeners can just go there and you can see this letter to the editor from Bob Lyman. So Bob, Jay was talking about the importance of hydrocarbons. <laughs> I guess that's an understatement, isn't it? Well, it is, Tom. I mean, I think people have to go to the basic statistics sometimes. The, the British Petroleum Statistical Review of World Energy is generally regarded as the most authoritative source of data on uh, worldwide energy supply, demand, and emissions. Uh, and according to the 2020 version of that report, 84% of the uh, energy that is used by people in the world is based upon hydrocarbons, oil, natural gas, and coal. Uh, another uh, uh, 15 or so percent is, is from hydroelectricity and from nuclear energy, and about 5% is from renew what's called renewable energy sources, um, about 3% from biomass and about 2% from solar and, and uh, wind energy sources. Uh, and the, 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 the thesis that the world can uh, somehow um, transition from all hydrocarbons, well not all hydrocarbons, 84 hydrocarbons to an entirely different set of energy resources basically is that we can go from 84% uh, oil and gas and coal to uh, the, having that demand met by the 2% that is now uh, solar and wind energy. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, there's a very, uh, a very important history of, trans, of energy transitions that people don't really pay much attention to. And, and um, uh, of course, the world is constantly transitioning from one form of energy, one form of economy to another. Um, but the historical analysis that's been done in this shows that typically a transition from one major energy source to another takes somewhere between 50 to 70 years. And th that is in circumstances in which the newer energy sources are ones that demonstrate to buyers that they are um, more reliable uh, and they have higher performance and they're at lower cost than the energy sources that they're replacing. What uh, And much of the reason for uh, that much time being required is that you have to replace uh, the entire infrastructure of an economy and many items in, in infrastructure like highways or bridges or roads or buildings can often last for, for 50 to 70 years. So uh, to make those kinds of transitions takes quite a long time, even when 
the market fundamentals support it. What governments are now talking about is achieving that kind of a transition in 10 to, to 30 years and doing so under uh, centrally planned economies. So that's not on the basis of what people prefer, but on the basis of the choices that are made by governments. That's gonna prove particularly difficult in free economies. Mm -hmm. And before oil and gas and coal, I mean, people talk about those as being somehow evil, but what was our energy sources before that? Well, ironically, it's what the environmentalists tell us that we should be going to now. The, the world's primary energy supply for, for millennia were, were um, wood, high biomass, uh, ultimately wind and solar energy. That, that was what mm -hmm. we had, you know, 150 years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. And we got, we got away from that because those types of energies are extremely low density uh, and they don't, they can't perform in a way that delivers the kind of services that a modern industrial economy requires. Yeah. And I understand that in England, they deforested major parts of the country specifically for the wood. Well, exactly. I mean, there were all kinds of problems that were associated with the energy economies of past eras. You know, it's always interesting to read back about what life was like in in 1910, 1911, um, both in New York and in, and in uh, London, the energy crisis of the day was all of the, the horse manure that fills the streets. Uh, oh, lovely. And people thought that that was going to uh, be a major health problem, a uh, major energy problem, and they, and they weren't quite sure how they were gonna deal with it. Well, of course, technology uh, and economy uh, allowed us to move past that. I remember I've uh, been a student of New York City, uh, the turn of the 20th century, 1900, and recall very well uh, the rules as to uh, how many street corners could have piles of manure, uh, how high the manure could be, and how to dispose of 15,000 uh, uh, horses who died in the course of, of a year. Uh, so uh, fortunately that transition once the automobile was invented and petroleum was discovered in great quantities, uh, we got around that. But I want to go back, Bob, to a comment you made about a centrally planned economy uh, not being a market economy, what people want, but what government desire. And I uh, feel very strongly uh, that the goal of the people that want to do away with uh, hydrocarbons uh, want to have a net zero economy one of their goals is a centrally planned economy. They want to get away uh, from a, a real uh, federalist or democratic system. Uh, they believe that the government knows best how to run the lives of all uh, people. And in doing so, they're, they're taking away one freedom after another. Uh, I really feel that the folks in Canada promoting net zero and the elimination of hydrocarbon, as well as the people in the United States uh, know full well that it can't be done. Uh, but along the way, the public is going to have to be begging the government for the energy to run their lives and uh, their freedoms will be given up and they will be enslaved uh, by the government. I think that's actually their goal. I don't think it has much to do with climate. Uh, it has all to do with a form of government that uh, removes freedoms. And I think it, it's true of every group 
that is supporting the uh, the climate hoax. Uh, how do you feel about that, Bob, with uh, regard to the situation in Canada? Well, it, it's probably the logical extension of um, the analysis of how emissions arise in the first place. Uh, we talked a little bit earlier about what are the sources of energy supply and which are the most uh, uh, emissions intensive. But um, the other side of the uh, coin is energy demand. And again, people really don't understand this, but 80% of the emissions that are produced, whether it's in uh, Canada, the United States or other countries, uh, is produced through uh, the final combustion of uh, the hydrocarbon sources. It's not produced uh, by the, the production um, at all. Uh, and so since the, the villains, if you will, or the, the emitters are all consumers, then the only way that, you, that governments can achieve a significant reduction in those emissions is by changing the choices that people would otherwise freely make. If I take that a little bit further, you, you think about you know, where in the economy do people demand uh, energy. And, and uh, in the United States, uh, the energy is used very heavily in the transportation and industry sectors and, and in the commercial sectors. Um, and, and so, um, and particularly uh, transportation plays a very significant role. It plays less of an important role in Canada uh, because uh, energy production is a more important part of our, of our overall emissions. But uh, if you think, well, okay, how do we reduce emissions in transportation? You have to do that either by making it much more expensive for people to um, transport people and goods, uh, or uh, you have to um, regulate in such a way as to eliminate the choices, either increasing the cost through typically through trans, uh, taxation or uh, regulating uh, people's choices, both involve very heavy government involvement. And, and um, they, they may not call, of course, they probably will not call that um, uh, central planning, uh, but that is exactly what it is. And um, the, uh, in, in Canada, what we've seen is that even though we are still relatively early in the phases of uh, the, uh, you know, the climate policy process, the carbon taxes that have been introduced here to increase the cost of energy uh, are now at $40 uh, per ton, and they're on a, a path to rise to $170 per ton uh, by, by 2030. For Americans, that would be kind of the equivalent of at least doubling your gasoline prices. But further, and, and the, on the other side of it, if you can't increase, if you can't reduce demand or emissions by um, making it more expensive, then you just simply eliminate the choices. In Canada, uh, our, our government has now declared that automotive companies will no longer be able to sell internal combustion engine cars uh, by 2035, in 14 years from now. Uh, and they will progressively increase the percentage of sales that must be uh, electric vehicles between now and then, uh, regardless of what people's choices are. 
the, that, that notion that um, governments have the right and indeed the, the moral duty uh, to take away people's choices is right at the heart of um, the central planning or, or authoritarian mindset. Wow, yeah, that's incredible. I mean, what would happen in the U.S., uh, Jay, if, if gas prices doubled and the government forbid internal combustion engines? Well, well in, in a sense, it's happening already in California. They, they've said pretty much the same thing that Bob just said for Canada. In the state of California, they're uh, planning no more internal combustion engines after uh, 2035. Uh, the gasoline prices in California are already pushing up to uh, $5 a gallon. Uh, and uh, they will be uh, by election day in uh, November of 2022, uh, the gasoline prices throughout most of America will be uh, twice what they were when Biden was elected. They were in the low $2. They'll certainly be in the low uh, $4 in another uh, uh, 14 months. And uh, that's the source of my optimism. If there's anything that will uh, make the mind up of a voter that he's being abused, misused, uh, is the, what he's paying at the gas pump. Our electric bill uh, is, is important, but it's not as obvious every week when we go to fill up our gasoline tanks and we, we see right in front of us what we're paying. So it is going to happen. And in my way of uh, thinking, it will work to the benefit of beginning to erode the uh, support of these terrible administrations in this country. Uh, I don't know, uh, you know how long it's going to take for Canadian citizens to uh, see the light. Uh, it would appear longer. They have seen more of a socialism in their government for uh, quite some years, more so than in the, uh, in the United States. Uh, but again, it is my source of optimism that uh, this kind of damage to the average citizen in America will ultimately uh, undermine the terrible things going on. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, it's interesting that the Conservative Party of Canada, you would think they would be directly opposed to all of this. But unfortunately, Aaron O'Toole, the head of the Conservative Party, has actually succumbed as well and basically is just having a carbon tax light. I mean, really, Bob, you know, with all the politicians that are currently in power agreeing on the climate scare, do you think Canadians will eventually rise up or not? Well, that's one of the most difficult questions that uh, anyone who uh, takes a skeptical view of current uh, climate alarmism uh, has to face. I, I think that um, there are certain points of sensitivity in the public that climate policy uh, will eventually uh, kind of trigger to, to its disadvantage. Um, one of them is uh, uh, oil and gas prices because those are important for mobility and, and uh, for home heating, which in Canada is absolutely critical. Part of it is the, uh, we get to the point where your electricity bills are, are, are doubling or, uh, every decade, which, which we're at risk of doing in some parts of Canada. Um, because electricity is, is uh, vital for so many different uses in, in modern society. And part of it is because what we can achieve in terms of emissions reduction in a country like Canada can only be viewed as effective if it, if it changes things at the global level. Canada represents 1.6% of 
the global greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, so that means that effectively that if we all committed collective hairy carry and, and went away, um, it would have make a, a very marginal impact on, on global emissions. The United States uh, currently only represents 14.5% of global emissions compared to 30% in China. Um, and the American share, like the Canadian, is constantly declining. Uh, all of the, well, sorry, two thirds of the world's greenhouse gas emissions currently are in the countries uh, of the non-OECD, that is the non-Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development countries, what we used to think of as the developing countries or the poorer ones. Um, and those are the countries that are growing the fastest, both in terms of their population and economies, uh, and the ones that are in driving the growth in, in emissions, because the people there are, are convinced that increased use of uh, lower cost, reliable energy sources is important for them uh, and their standards of living. So when, if in that global context, I, I think Canadians and, and probably Americans as well will come to, to realize that the kinds of sacrifices that we're being asked to make really will not have much of an effect on the global trends in emissions or in temperatures. So mm -hmm. you have to ask yourself, well, then what's the point? Yeah, exactly. We have to go for a break now. So come back after the break. We'll be digging deeper into Bob's open letter, a Canadian comments on U.S. climate policy letter to a neighbor that's currently on the America Out Loud website. So stay tuned. We'll be right back after the break. Now, never before in our history have we witnessed the level of hatred that is now being waged against our law enforcement. While anarchist groups create havoc and overwhelm our first responders, these same groups and their corporate supporters are calling for the police forces to be shrunk and defunded. What can you and I do to make a difference? How can we stand up for what is right and to show our support? That's what I'm going to tell you about this incredible new platform. It's called ShopToTheRight.com. It's a new shopping platform that will help you find businesses that align with your values. They feature products made in America. They support veteran-owned businesses as well as our law enforcement community. This is a time when we need to stick together, we need to shop together, and we need to support each other. It's time for you and I to make some noise and stand up to protect our country. And one easy way to do that is to shop and give our money to companies that don't seek to destroy our way of life. So join the fight for liberty. ShopToTheRight.com. Support those American businesses that support law enforcement, and veterans. Each of us is born with 30 trillion cells that make us. These cells determine how we feel, perform, sleep, focus, and how long we live. And to live our best life, all we have to do is feed our cells. But most food and supplements don't reach our cells, keeping us from reaching our full potential. Make every cell count with Healthy Cell. Founded with a mission to empower people to take control of their own health at the most fundamental level, Dr. Vincent Jampapa, world-renowned cell researcher and medical doctor, created supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, 
and stay younger longer. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. And that's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L. And use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. It was a vision that gave birth to a unique multimedia platform that would combine classic talk radio, great writers, and memorable podcasts and videos. AmericaOutloud.com is a conservative leader in a field that is predominantly run by far-left progressive globalists. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. So, Bob, in your letter, a letter to a neighbor, Canadian comments on U.S. climate policy, you wrote, it's not about whether climate change is real. Can you explain to our audience what you mean by that, please? Well, yes, Tom. Quite often, one of the rhetorical tricks, if you will, that is played by people who are uh, of the view that that humans are are causing catastrophic uh, climate change is to simplify the issue down to its over essentials. Um, and, and, and they'll say as a shorthand that climate change is real, meaning that uh, climate change is, is dangerous and humans are the cause. Um, and the two are, are by no means the same thing. Of course, uh, climate change is occurring as it has for millions of years. The real issue though uh, is whether the uh, trends in uh, global emissions are such that they would uh, cause severe adverse impacts, either in terms of short-term extreme weather events or longer-term changes in the global climate and temperature. But they don't make that distinction. Anyone who tries to delve into this in any detail um, comes across the the reality that the, the science behind this is enormously complex. I'm I'm not a scientist. Uh, I've read a great deal about it, and and I greatly admire the people who have uh, provided, you know, the best possible analysis on this. What I'm certain of, having read a great deal about it, but not being a scientist, is that the the, uh, debate over this is not issue. Um, There are, every year, there are thousands of articles published by people who dissent from the mainstream view uh, that is, that is um, propounded by the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Um, and it, I, my guess is that less than one in 10,000 people really understand the scientific issues. As somebody who spent their career uh, as a policy advisor, um, I know that if I went to a minister of the Canadian government and advised them uh, what to do about this, I, the first thing I would have to acknowledge is that we're not dealing in uncertainties. We're dealing in an enormous uncertainty. And that sense of uncertainty has to guide the approach that we take to the policy response that we make. We talk about certainty and uncertainty. I have been studying uh, climate change very strongly since 1975, when the scare was that uh, the next ice age was coming and every major news magazine in North America had uh, cover stories 
of an, uh, a coming ice age. So the scare was global cooling in 1975. Uh, I'm convinced that it was switched to global warming because it made for some way or other a, a bigger scare story. Government always wants to uh, scare the public into uh, wanting government to protect them. Well, in my uh, now clearly 46, 47 years of studying climate change at the, at the, the deepest level, I'm convinced of a certainty that few will join me. And that certainty is that man's impact on the temperature of the planet is immeasurably you can't find it. You can't come up with a number. So you might as well assume it is zero. It really is zero. So this is the biggest fraud ever perpetrated on society. But those that promote it essentially own the media. Uh, they buy their ink by the barrel. They own all social media entirely. And so you're saying that only not one in 10,000 understand the IPCC is absolutely accurate because the public is barraged every day, every hour, every place they get their news by a fear of man-caused global warming. And if they have no serious scientific background, uh, what, what chance do they have other than to accept it. So they have some level of fear. They insert a little common sense and they hear people saying the world is going to end as we know it in 12 years because the planet is burning up. And you add a little common sense and you say, well, that's silly. And they don't buy that level of fear, but they buy enough to let the government try to uh, promote uh, economic policies to the detriment of, uh, of society. So it, uh, it really is terrible, but I want our audience to know that in 46 or 47 years of studying this and reading really everything's been printed by scientists uh, considerably smarter than I, that it is the biggest fraud in history. Man's impact on the temperature of the planet is essentially zero uh, and that everything they are being uh, talked into, into doing uh, is wrong and false. And the main reason for it is to talk people into giving up their freedoms in exchange for some level of, of confidence that the, bubble, the, the, the government's going to take care of them. Mm, yeah. And in fact, it's funny eh, when you see so many of these temperature measures for the Earth, which is a little bit of a strange statistic in the first place, because who cares what the temperature of the Earth is? It only matters where you live as to what happens. But they often measure it in tenths or even hundredths of a degree. I mean, for a temperature of a planet, does that make any sense to you guys? And none at all. I mean, yeah, they, the average temperature of planet is silly. Uh, yes, all those measurements are, are silly. I want to go back for a moment uh, to the electric car uh, situation in Canada and the United States. Where do you think uh, governments uh, think the uh, electricity is going to come from to power these uh, green fairy tale electric cars that are going to replace the internal combustion engine? Where do, where do you think people think it's going to come from? In Canada, we have a, a different electricity generation pattern than you have in the United States with uh, one province in particular, Quebec, uh, having very, very high levels of hydroelectricity uh, generation capacity and uh, consequently very low 
uh, electricity costs. And so uh, in Quebec, uh, which is about 25% of the Canadian population, they're confident that the electricity would come from uh, hydroelectricity. In the other provinces, um, it's more of a mixture of uh, nuclear energy, hydro energy, uh, and coal-powered generation with, with natural gas-fired generation offering uh, much of the peaking capacity. The government is now in the process of ordering the, the phase-out of the coal-fired power plants at, at very significant cost. Uh, uh, but that's, it's feasible you know, to do that. The, the, the really uh, tough problem, of course, is that it's associated with the, the increasing reliance upon wind and solar energy as sources of generation for all uses, including for electric vehicles. Kent Zare, who's an electrical engineer in, in Alberta, did an analysis of the additional electrical generation requirements that would be required to power a 100% electric vehicle fleet in Canada. Uh, and he, he estimated that it would require 10,000 megawatts of additional generation capacity. Um, the, in Canada, there's, there's two major hydroelectric projects currently underway, um, uh, each, the, the total of which uh, is about 10,000 megawatts. So uh, in order to um, meet the generation, additional generation requirements that, that would be needed just to electrify the entire vehicle fleet, we'd have to have nine times the hydroelectric generation capacity additions that, that were, are now underway. Uh, and of course, the associated transmission and distribution facilities as well. And that's simply impossible, even in a 30-year time frame. None of, no projects of that magnitude are currently uh, planned uh, in Canada at all. That's an indication that these, these uh, the, the electrical generation requirements that are associated with vastly increased uh, electrical vehicle powering is just simply not going to be possible. Hmm. I, I don't know if you folks saw it, but the actress uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, remember she played Elaine on Seinfeld. She's just come out with an advertisement that you can power a Mercedes-Benz with AA batteries. And she does it quite seriously for quite a while until you realize that she's talking about 10,000 of them. <laughs> And everything in the car is full of AA batteries. It's quite funny. I'll send it to you later and put a link up under the uh, podcast. But um, yeah, you can't run them with AA batteries. <laughs> well, that is, uh, you know, it, the whole the whole battery thing. Everybody thinks they're going to be some new technologies, uh, especially in the battery area where we. Uh, made only minor improvements in the last uh, 50 years. Obviously, uh, the lithium-ion battery is considerably better than uh, the lead acetate uh, battery uh, that powers your, your cell phone and your uh, uh, computer, but uh, lithium is hard to come by. It, it powers a Tesla motor car, but it's a uh, 1,000 pounds of these, uh, these batteries at a cost of uh, $10,000 per a battery to power a car. And, and so the technology is not going to allow batteries to replace uh, hydrocarbons. And wind and solar are just uh, too undependable. I mean, you cannot run an economy. Uh, wind and solar actually, in a very real way, provide no net benefit to any electric gold grid, whether it's in Canada or in the United States, because of its uh, lack of dependability 
you have to back it up 100% with some form of hydrocarbon energy or nuclear uh, power or in, in Canada, hydropower, which we uh, do not have significantly in, other than in the Northwest of the, uh, of the United States. So we're at a much greater disadvantage in the United States even than Canada is, although uh, Canada's experiments will be uh, a, colossal, a colossal failure. Uh, Bob, your economics and your articles, and let me tell our audience that uh, Bob uh, wrote a masterful 3,500-word uh, paper on the economics of uh, Canada's disastrous effort to go to net zero, meaning no uh, carbon dioxide emissions. And uh, he allowed me the opportunity to take his paper and uh, create three uh, shorter, simpler articles for the, uh, the public. And they're going to be published at uh, a website I also write for, uh, cfact.org. Uh, and it will be uh, the Canadian experiment, part one, part two, and part three. And uh, I, Bob uh, has made a great contribution to the rest of the world by describing uh, economically really what problems Canada is about to run into that the rest of the world might uh, pay heed to. And Bob, I'd like you to give some of the most significant economic detriments that uh, are going to come to Canada in the coming years if they continue on this, this path. Oh, that's a depressing story, I'm afraid, uh, there, Jay. Um, well, the, the most significant impacts that have been felt so far have been in terms of the uh, significant reduction in um, investment that has occurred in the oil and gas um, production and uh, transportation industries. That's been at, at, at least uh, $200 billion. Those costs are constantly increasing because uh, of such a large amount of investment that it would have otherwise gone into the oil and gas industry has been discouraged as a result of the efforts by the government and, and by the environmental community to make it seem like Canada's oil sands are, are not um, an environmentally responsible source of, of emissions. Let me just, just make a point about that. The, the, the average carbon dioxide intensity of Canadian oil sands production is now less than the average of the uh, oil that is consumed in U.S. refineries. So, so, you know, the, the, that, that is not known, but and as a consequence, the, the activists are able to, to constantly uh, discourage investment. Um, the other uh, most very important impact has been upon uh, the costs for electricity consumers, particularly in provinces like Ontario that have gone heavily into uh, renewable energy using uh, what are called feed-in tariffs, which are guaranteed uh, rates for the 20-year uh, life of the contract uh, and uh, guaranteed first to the grid rights for what is, in, in fact, the most expensive energy sources. That has doubled the, the cost of uh, electricity for consumers. And in Ontario, at least, it's driven 75,000 industrial jobs out of the province. And that will only continue as, as uh, that goes on in future. The, the focus of much of climate efforts is what are, on what is called the emissions intensive industries. Uh, and um, the, the, but, but first up in terms of their 
statement of who the villains are, are, as I say, the oil and gas industry. But if you look at, at the emissions intensive industries in Canada and in the United States, they go well beyond the, the resource, uh, the, the oil and gas industry. They include the mining industry, all mining industries. They include petrochemicals. They include pulp and paper, um, cement, steel, medical, metal fabrication, auto parts and manufacturing. In, in other words, they extend right into the kind of the heartland of our industrial complexes. And, and what, what is threatened for Canada, and, and I would suggest to you increasingly for the United States, is the deindustrialization of our economies with most of those investments, most of those industrial operations moving to other countries, primarily in Asia. So that, that's, what, that's what we face. The, and, that, and of course, that wouldn't reduce emissions. It would probably increase emissions. Well, exactly. It, there, there, there is no net gain from, from all of that economic damage. Tom and I are currently working on evaluating the, the most recent climate plan for the city of Ottawa. Amazingly, we now have cities in Canada that are devising their own climate plans. Um, and, the, and the city of Ottawa's plan is one that calls for a significant increase in the taxation uh, of uh, consumers directly and indirectly that will probably add about 37% to the, you know, the average uh, uh, property tax bill of a consumer. Just for climate action. Just, just for climate, that's right. That is, that's about 90% of the revenues that are now earned by the municipality from property taxes, which is their single largest source of revenue. This is going to have an enormously adverse impact on the average homeowner, the average taxpayer, and the average motorist. Um, it, it's, uh, and, we don't, and, and we don't yet know what the ultimate cost will be because uh, we're still in the early stages. Mm -hmm. Looking at the United States, in April, President Biden, he set new targets, of course, for the U.S., that it would reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 50 to 52 percent below 2005 levels by 2030 and attain this magical net zero by 2050. Like, what would that mean in the United States, Bob, if they actually did achieve President Biden's goal? U.S. emissions are now divided uh, among six different sectors of the economy. Uh, transportation represents about 29%, uh, electric, electricity generation about 25%, industry about 23%, agriculture 10%, commercial 7%, and residential 6%. So making emissions reductions of that side size must fall most heavily on the, 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 heavy, the largest emitting sectors, which is to say transportation and electricity generation. Much of what is focused on, or what kind of gets the highest attention, concerns the uh, reducing uh, emissions from light-duty vehicles. Those are cars, SUVs, and light-duty trucks. If you eliminated every single one of those in the United States, um, you would reduce emissions by about 15%. Mm -hmm. Okay, if you eliminated all of the coal, sorry, let's, let's, let's be more realistic, half of the coal that is used in power generation in the United States, that would eliminate 10%. And then if you decided that you were gonna shut down every single 
oil and gas well, every pipeline, every refinery in the United States. So that Americans uh, had to rely 100% on imported oil and gas. That would only get you down another 8% of the emissions. So those three together, eliminating vehicles, cutting coal use in half, and eliminating uh, oil upstream oil industry would get you to 33%. And you'd still have to find 17 to 19% of emissions more to get to the target that President Biden has, has suggested. Hmm. And by 2030. <laughs> by 2030, within nine years. It, so why don't they just promise that we're going to land on Mars tomorrow? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, the, the mind boggles about this sometimes, to think that these things could be regarded as uh, both technologically, economically, and politically acceptable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all insanity, and I like to keep reminding our audience it, that there is nothing bad about carbon dioxide emissions. The earth and its population will be better off when we climb from 415 parts per million today to 600 parts per million somewhere uh, down the road. There is zero bad about carbon dioxide. So not only is it a fraud, everything you read and hear in the mainstream media, the social media, it's upside down. Uh, it's, it's everything you read, the opposite of that uh, is true. So we're going through these gymnastics as uh, Bob has described to meet these reductions in carbon dioxide, uh, not just for nothing, uh, to punish the earth and all those that live upon it. Mm-hmm. And Bob, you say in your letter that the politicians are setting these targets they're not really serious. Now, can you say a little more about that? Like, how did Canada do with respect to meeting our really aggressive targets? <laughs> well, Tom, the government of Canada has been setting emission reduction targets since 1992. Uh, I think there's a series of about six of them in all. Um, we have never met one of those targets. Not one. <laughs> not one. But every time that we missed one, we set a, a more demanding target. Um, and you, I mean, you might ask yourself, why in the world would one do that? And then the reality, of course, resides more in the, in the realm of politics than it does in the realm of, of public policy. The, when, you in, when you endorse a target that is more ambitious than you can possibly reach, it gives the uh, environmentalist community the, kind of the moral high ground so that they can constantly uh, say that politicians have not honored their promises and uh, therefore that they've got to try harder. Um, uh-huh. but, but at the global level, um, it, the same uh, applies. Um, the none, with the possible exception of a few countries in Europe, none of the uh, emission reduction objectives that have been set uh, by the United Nations uh, since 1990 has ever been met either. Uh, yeah. and, and the um, in 1990 uh, to, to 2020, the emissions growth was 59%. So in, in, in the midst of, of constant and ever-increasing emission reduction targets, global emissions have constantly risen. If you want to look more recently, uh, of course, the United Nations had a major co- conference in Paris in, 
in 2015, at which uh, they were unable to agree upon emission reduction goal, but they did agree that every country would submit a plan for how it would reduce emissions. And uh, of the plans that were submitted by countries uh, in 2015, uh, I, I think there are seven countries out of the 196 uh, that are now on track to meet their plans. Uh, and certainly in the United States and Canada are not on, on track to meet their plans either. China and India, the two countries that have the fastest growing emissions, did not agree to reduce emissions. They only agreed to reduce their emissions intensity. Uh, and uh, right now what is happening is that the countries of Asia, of course, are, are very rapidly increasing their emissions. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we set the targets, uh, but it, it frankly, it, it, you can, the only interpretation one can put upon it is that they are intended uh, as communications vehicles and not as serious efforts. Yeah, it's a shame, you know, that George Carlin isn't still alive, the comedian, because I can just see him, you know, taking this and turning it into a great skit. Why are we only shooting for 50 to 52 percent by 2030? Why don't we shoot for 200 percent by tomorrow at three in the afternoon? You know, <laughs> I mean, it's all it's all so silly that I can see this could be actually the source of great comedy. But sadly, on the way to not achieving their targets, they really damage us, don't they, Bob? Well, they do, because let's take uh, Jay's point that, that uh, this is, can be really harmful and, and, uh, and, and put that again in, in a global context. The, the fact of the matter is that uh, right now, the majority, 65% of the emissions are coming from the developing countries, and that is constantly increasing. According to the United Nations, the countries of the world, the economic growth in the countries of the world will be heavily focused in the uh, less developed countries over the next 20 to 30 years, uh, as will the population growth. The world will have 2 billion people more in 2050 than it does now. Um, and it will have significantly higher income than it does now, with all of that growth occurring uh, in the less developed countries. The countries uh, of Europe and North America will, by 2050, only represent 11% uh, of the world's population, uh, and not much more than that in terms of the uh, economic activity. Uh, so, uh, and further, um, they will not be in a position to dictate to the developing countries what energy sources they use in order to uh, ensure their uh, economic development or improvement in their standard of living. So um, it, it, no matter what we do, no matter what sacrifices countries like Canada and the United States accept, it will not change the course of the world's emissions. Um, mm -hmm. If you believe the worst in terms of uh, greenhouse gas emissions effects, which I don't, but if you do, um, then the only response sensible to that would be for the world to find a way to adapt to the changes, not to try to mitigate them. Mm -hmm. And yet across the world, only about 5% of the climate finance goes to adaptation. And I understand that's largely because there's huge profits to be made in mitigation. Would that conclusion be right, uh, Bob? Well, absolutely. And, and, and you, 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 you must ask yourself, um, why is it 
that of all of the options that are available for reducing emissions through mitigation, uh, such a heavy emphasis is placed upon uh, wind and solar energy. Uh, the, the, according to the um, analysis that has been done on, on renewable energy investment trends, uh, the investment, investment in the world on clean energy over the period uh, from 2005 to 2019 was $3.7 trillion, <laughs> and 2.2 trillion of that was on uh, wind and solar. Um, and th these are all um, investments that are, of course, driven by government policies. They're not, if there were no subsidies, these just simply wouldn't occur. Um, okay. And so um, that gives you a sense of the magnitude of the funds that are now being directed uh, towards these particular solutions. Not one penny for nuclear energy, which is of course one of the most tried and true uh, technologies that one could use in terms of reducing emissions, but it's, it's ideologically considered to be unacceptable. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and as you say, Tom, 95% uh, uh, for mitigation, 5% for adaptation. Um, it's, it's a very um, odd, uh, division of, of society's choices. Yeah. And, you know, even the United Nations at the Copenhagen Climate Conference wanted it to be a 50-50 division, which is, it certainly hasn't. Well, we have to wrap up there. And I encourage listeners to check out the America Out Loud website. Look for Letter to a Neighbor, a Canadian Comments on U.S. Climate Policy for a really nice summary of what we were talking about today. So, Bob, thank you so much for being on our show today. Well, you're very welcome, Tom. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it's great. So this is Tom Harris and Dr. Jay Lear signing out from the other side of the story. <laughs>